The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I'm talking via Skype with Peter McKinley from Cromwell in the South Island. Peter was a pilot in the Royal New Zealand Air Force during the Second World War and continued to fly post-war. Well, welcome to the show, Peter. And um, basically what I'd like to do is just start at the very beginning. Where were you born and uh, um, where did you grow up? I was born in Scotland. Uh, in Fifeshire. Yes. Um, I was two or three years old when uh, we left Scotland on an um, immigration scream known as the Ten Pounders. You can okay, look that yeah. one up. The Ten Pounders were returned servicemen from the First World War who were granted free passage and 10 pounds in their hand to emigrate to any one of the three colonies. You'll know them, of course, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Right. My dad elected to come to New Zealand, and uh, he, uh, I don't think he was a courageous man. He was um, a fellow who would prefer to take a back seat, and... um, he came to New Zealand because there were other Scottish people here. Yes. And uh, he sort of became part of a, a community 
here. We first of all, uh, he went to the West Coast. A terrible place. You, I don't know how well you know the West Coast of the South Island, but I, I do a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it just just rains and it rains and it's completely covered in um, in uh, native bush. The the weather just trundles across the Tasman, picks up, up every bit of water that it can on the way, hits the hills, <laughs> dumps all its water on the west coast. Yes, yes. Um, Dave, I uh, haven't very many memories of living on the west coast. Uh, they are a bit hard to dredge up now. Yep. Um but I know my mother didn't like it, um, and she was only four foot ten. I'm I'm a, a runt also, right? And she was uh, <laughs> only four foot ten, but uh, she had enough fight in her for a woman twice her size. And uh, she uh, got into debt over there. Uh, got into debt because um, uh, the Scots couldn't help themselves. They'd, they'd go on strike at the drop of a hat, yep. and they did that. And uh, at one stage, I recall her saying that she uh, uh, had saved 37 pounds, and uh, along they came the striking Scotsman, went on strike, and uh, she'd used up all her 37 pounds and owed, owed the grocer about as much again, who, oh, right. who was supporting the community on credit. Uh, West, right. That's a West Coast story. Um, it was always damp. There was always mists hanging around. Uh, I have toured the place and had a look at the old washrooms and everything that the were erected for the men, and it was of interest at the time, but now I I just find it hard to dredge up. Yep, yep. Um, what else can I tell you? Did you come across any sort of aviation uh, on the West Coast, or, or when, when was the first time you saw an aeroplane? Um, aeroplanes. I, I fell in love with them as soon as I was introduced to them. It, it was a new dimension. Oh, yes. Uh, my history with aeroplanes. Um, I had to go, I applied to join the Air Force. Why? I do not know. I'd never been near an aeroplane in my life. I didn't know what, I didn't know that they had a smell of their own and characteristics of their own. Yep. And, uh, but um, I had to go to the drill hall in Dunedin. For an interview, and there they asked me, um, why? Why did I, I uh, want to fly airplanes? Yep. And uh, I vaguely recall that I said, I, uh, I don't know anything about them, and I want to learn about them, um, and I'd like to learn to fly them. Uh, one, I recall one of them said to me, uh, oh, no, not necessarily fly them. You, you're just a little fellow. 
you you could um, be an air gunner. Right. And I reacted very strongly, I recall, to that and said, not in your life. If I'm going to have anything to do with them, I want to fly them. Right. Um, and that became a bit of a passion for the rest of my life. Okay. I owned a Cessna 180. I don't know how well you know your aircraft. Yes, but, yes. Uh, uh, if you asked anybody what aeroplane would they like to own as a private aeroplane, most of them wouldn't hesitate, and I'd just say a Cessna 180. Right. Um, they were a delightful, an easy aeroplane to fly, a very forgiving aeroplane. You'll, you'll know what I mean by that. They were a forgiving yep. aeroplane. Um, yep. They could recognize your mistakes, and airplanes have a way of talking to you. Um, near the point of stall, they start to vibrate, things right. like that. And right. That's a language that you, you get to know very well. Uh, incidentally, uh, that airplane, uh, its uh, registration was Bravo Sierra Papa, BSP. Right. And it's in beautiful retirement in Auckland, uh, owned by the Aircraft Pilots um, Association, the Overseas Flyers, you know, the... Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the Airline Pilots Association. Yeah, the, the, uh, there's a, a coterie, it'll be under a different name to that, in, yep. in Auckland that um, uh, is a sort of the gathering home place for the overseas and long-distance pilots that we have in New Zealand. Right, right. Yes, sir. And um, they got the opportunity to buy Bravo Sierra Papa, and, which they did, and it's uh, housed very carefully and lovingly in, in Auckland somewhere. Uh, as as the toy, yep. uh, the plaything for these yep. fellows just to take a bit of the, the stress out of their life from frying the big heavies. Right. Okay. Uh, that is, it was a beautiful aeroplane. Yeah, well, we'll take you back to the um, when you were joining the Air Force. Tell me about um, your, your joining up and your training. Uh, was the war already on by then? Yes. Yes, this was 1941. Okay, yep. And um, I had to go to the drill hall in Dunedin for an interview. At there, uh, there they told me I didn't have enough education. Okay, so yep. So they asked me, why didn't I ask to join air crew? And I said, I didn't think my education qualifications were sufficient. And they said, hey, there's a war on now. Uh, that was just simple like that. Right. Uh, right. There's a war on now. Um, and um, I had to go back to night school. Yes. Yep. Uh, they had quite a, a hefty booklet turned out. Um, gee, I had the name there a moment ago. It's just escaped me. But uh, this 
was a rundown on on uh, on what was needed, just as general personal characteristics, in order to uh, become part of the. We used to think we were elite. We weren't really, uh, but. So that was the um. They, they had like twenty six papers you had to do with that night school, didn't they? Yeah, a large number of them. I just don't remember, but yeah. uh, they were called assignments. That's the one. Yep, yep. And uh, we just had to get on top of those. I wasn't too bad from a memory point of view. I could store stuff and dredge it up again pretty pretty much at will, and yep. uh, for which I was grateful. And uh, I became an instructor. Right. I'm, I'm just, just searching in those back roads of my memory there. Um, <laughs> Well, before you became an instructor, whereabouts did you do your flying training? I, I went to Tyree, and, um, and now here's an interesting experience. I was taken for a flight, my first yep. ever flight in a Tiger Moth by, by a pilot officer called McGill, M-C-G-I-L-L. -L. Right. And um, we used to have to do half the day in the classroom and half the day in the aeroplane. Yep. And on this particular day, my first day, I uh, was in the classroom. Right. And the day before, I'd been taken for a flight by Pilot Officer McGill. Pleasant enough fellow that I can remember. Didn't get to know him very much because he was dead the next day. That was, oh. <laughs> that was my introduction to uh, to aviation. Wow. Um, he, uh, there was a place below the airfield, down the valley a bit, in, in, on the Tyree Plains, known, just generally known as a swamp. Uh, yep. That described it. And uh, he was low-flying down there. And... Uh, Misjudged it, and uh, the air is a wee bit like the sea. Uh, it's very unforgiving for right. those that don't pay due uh, obeisance to, to, to what's demanded of you when flying over the water or flying over the land. And uh, if you learn those quickly, you had a fair chance of staying alive, but McGill was killed the very next morning. So that was right. a, that was interesting for me. I'm in the classroom at that morning. He was a quiet fellow. That's I can't remember much more about him. It's too long ago now. Right. Um, Did you have any other adventures when you were learning to fly on the Tiger Moths? Did you have any any um, problems, or was it fairly natural to you? A Tiger Moth was a delightful aeroplane. Uh, they were built in all our New Zealand Tiger Moths were, were home built in yep. uh, Wellington. I've forgotten the name of the little corner of the airfield in Wellington, but the Rongatai. Rongatai, yeah. Yep. And um, 
all the tiger moths we had in New Zealand, and there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them, um, were all built uh, at the corner of the airfield at Rongatai. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so where did you progress to from your flying training on the tiger moths? Did you go on to the Harvards um, from there or to the Oxfords? Just let me think just for a moment. Um They, they're writing reports on you all the time while you're training. Yep. And um, I had acceptable um, conversational skills. Yep. And uh, <laughs> stop laughing. And uh, they uh, decided that I might make a good instructor. Right, right. So they sent me to Tauranga. They yep. sent me to Tauranga in uh, where I was to uh, do a course uh, to train me to be a flying instructor. Right, right. Now, what did, what did that actually involve, that instructor's course? Uh, believe it or not, the man that taught me was a man called Strand. And uh, if I told you his nickname was Stropper, <laughs> uh, you'll know how, how, how hard he was on the uh, on the pupils that he had. But he was good. Yep. He was very, very good. Um, you flew with – with uh, I flew mostly with this man called Strand. Yep. And he had a little book that was known as a patter book. If you've ever come across one. Grab oh. it. Don't care what okay. you pay for it. Send me the bill and I'll, I'd love to have one. But okay. it's a little instructional book for instructors. And it was just known as a patter book. And that patter became um, almost like a piece of poetry in that oh. you um, you learned it so well that you just – well, it described itself, didn't it? It was a patter book. Right. And right. Um, so that every pupil got the same line of, of, of instructional patter right. that any other pupil got. Okay, okay. There were other interesting things about it. Um, if a pupil wasn't progressing... Uh, you could go to your flight commander and say, I'm getting nowhere with this guy. Um, he just doesn't seem to be grasping some of the things I'm telling him. Uh, I recommend he has a change of instructor. Right. Uh, again, that was routine. And uh, it gave the, the pupil himself a second chance. It ruled out any clashes of personality. And he got another another instructor, and quite often that that made the difference. Right. Uh, you weren't allowed to feel insulted about that or anything. It was just just the way it was, and uh, so that a pupil got a ton of opportunity, and yes. that uh, a change of instructor was one. And very often, very often they progressed and pro progressed quite well with this with the second instructor. Structors became a, a fairly close-knit group. Um, 
I have fond fond memories of my um, instructing days. Yep. My flight commander was a man called Doug St. George. Oh, yes. Yep. Very famous guy. <laughs> oh, yes. Doug was single-minded. Absolutely, <laughs> totally single-minded. And uh, he, he was driven. Uh, he became chief of air staff. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And uh, But Doug was driven. Driven by ambition. Uh, and... Uh, now, what happened to him? He died of a heart attack somewhere or other. Okay. Uh, but he was chief of air staff when that happened. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, which is no mean achievement, believe you me. No, no not at all. Uh, he took the, uh, the squadron of uh, Corsairs to Japan. Yes, at, that's right. At the end of the war. Uh, he had a terrible job at the end of the war. The Corsairs, I don't know how many, but quite a large number of them were stacked in a heap at the end of the the runway and set fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Terrible, wasn't it? Oh, terrible. <laughs> you, you know, New Zealand would have loved to have had those things sitting around as, as monuments around the country today. Absolutely. absolutely. They were a magnificent aeroplane. Uh, a yeah. piece of engineering that you you had to be associated with to really uh, get a feel for them and, uh, and they appeal to you. Right. I recall um, pilots that uh, were just in love. I remember one guy taking off, his first takeoff in a Corsair, 2,000 horsepower, of course, and uh, fellas used to like to take them off, just lift them off the ground a wee bit, 20 feet, and fly level till they'd really picked up speed, and and then haul back, and uh, I just, one uh, expression by one pilot, uh, and he's, he's just on the air to the tower, and he just said, "Holy hell!" Because <laughs> that was that was just the feeling you got. Right. You pulled the stick back, and up they went. Brilliant. They were, Brilliant. They were, um, they were like a piece of artillery. They had six uh, .5 machine guns. Uh, they were. Um, it's not concentrated. There's another word for it, but they were the the uh, armourers set them in the wings to uh, converge at 300 metres. Yep, 300 yards it would be. It was American at 300 yards, and uh, at 300 yards, well, just let's say the fellow at the other end just disintegrated. Yeah, I saw that yeah. with my own eyes. Right. Um, you, you can imagine. Oh, absolutely. Point fives, you know, as thick as your thumb. Yeah. And, and uh, concentrated at 300 yards in. It, they were just like a piece of artillery. Absolutely. And uh, we learned to be fairly effective with those things. 
again, it was just practice, practice, and more practice. But before you before you got onto the Corsairs, you would have gone uh, to the OTU and flown the Kitty Hawk, I guess. Uh, oh, I had been to this this uh, school for instructors in Tauranga. Yep. Yep. And um, that was a three or four month course. When you finished your instructor's course, where did you, where were you an instructor, and what were you oh, flying? Bell Block. Oh yes, Bell yep. Block at New Plymouth. Yep. So you would have been on the Tiger Moths there. Yeah. It it was a bit. You know the the old saying about New Plymouth. If, if you can't see the mountain, it's raining. If you can see it, it's going to rain. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> heard that one a few times. <laughs> so you'll know what the airfield was like. It was damp, yeah. soggy. Um, they took us away from there, shifted the whole station down to Ashburton. Okay, yep. Uh, because they needed the field at New Plymouth a patrol squadron of Hudson's. After the war, the Hudson's were converted to a civilian-type aircraft, and the Hudson's flew uh, very regularly on internal New Zealand airlines for quite a long time, along with, believe it or not, the good old de Havilland, the Domini, and the Rapide. Yeah, yeah I've, I've flown both of those just a little bit. Oh, right. When we were shifting the station from New Plymouth down to Ashburton, and we were given a couple of these things, and we'd fly the pilots back up to, to Bell Block, pick up another Tiger Moth, and fly it all, all the way down to Ashburton. Oh, right. Okay. So d did you prefer Ashburton to New Plymouth then? Different, different uh, place altogether. First of all, the ground was very, very dry yep. in, in, in uh, the, the South Island one. Um, and we got away from that slight swampiness that was ever-present in New Plymouth. Right. The, the Venturas, you know, they'd leave a rut yes. in, in, the, um, in the airfield surface at New Plymouth when they landed sometimes after heavy rain. And... Uh, Ashburton, again, it gets down to people. Um, the people at Ashburton sort of took the um, the uh, air force that was suddenly dumped upon them as, as belonging to them, and uh, their yeah. homes were open. There was, it was just a different, different place, different people. Right, right. So you found the the whole town very welcoming of the air force then. Um, in in Ashburton, generally speaking, yes, they were warmer people. Their homes were more open. Yep. I don't think that has any sinister connotations at all. Their homes were just open. Right. Right. Um, the people would do anything for you. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I have some fond memories of that place. Right. I was in it. I used to go to an engineer's shop a lot, get the drawbar fixed on my old bomb and things like that. And he he sort of took us out, never charged us, and oh. uh, and um, 
did lots of little jobs and I remember him being in his workshop one day and talking away to him and I heard a voice, a kid's voice come from somewhere. Where's he? Where's he? He said, oh, he's in there. And he was in the boiler, way inside the boiler of a traction engine. There were a lot yeah. of traction engines in mid-Canterbury. Right, right. They, they used them a lot for uh, harvesting. Oh, yes, yep, yep. And uh, where that voice come from? And this little fella's way down with, with wire brushes and working inside the boiler of an old traction engine. And the, <laughs> and, and the voices I heard was from this, I don't know how old he was, six, seven. Right. He's talking to a man, you know, a man in his 70s probably. And yep. the voice just said, hey, Huey, pass me that bloody hammer, will you? <laughs> and this was, this was from a five or six-year-old <laughs> scraping some of the crap from inside a, a, the boiler of a traction engine. Right. The other thing, now, of you... course, is you could land your tiger moth anywhere. Yep. Uh, great big paddocks. And... Um, the big idea was to see mum walking down the fridge, the fence line, the fence line with the morning tea, big basket, yeah. scones and raspberry jam and stuff like that. And uh, uh, we'd just land down the fence line also and partake of the morning tea. <laughs> Brilliant. That's a wee memory from way back there. Now, you reminded me when you said about the traction engines around Ashburton, um, I believe that a traction engine, or might have been the train, um, sparks from it set the grass on fire and a number of tiger moths were lost. Were you there then? I can't remember that. Okay. No, I it, couldn't have been there. It might have been after you'd left. Yes. Um, yeah, it was either a train or a traction engine passing by, set the grass on fire and a lot well, of the aircraft... It wouldn't be hard at all. No, no. No. So how long were you an instructor before you um, were given the nod to become a fighter pilot? Were you there for a F while? Fifteen months. Okay, yep, yep. And were you keen to become a, f a fighter pilot and, and move on? or was Oh, nobody wanted to be an instructor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't join this play. I wanted to go and shoot Germans. Right. <laughs> um. <laughs> But that came in due course. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've got the, you've gathered long since now that I've got the gift of the gab. And, right. Uh, and that was um, uh, part of the reason the Air Force, they put me in a lecture room. Right. Uh, at um, Ashburton. And and I got used to talking in front of people. Right. Um, you'd have a classroom of 30 or 40 uh, budding pilots of one sort or another. They passed out from there with a recommendation. Uh, always one or the other, single-engine training, multi-engine training. Okay, right, right. I, I can't say that the authorities always took notice of it, and uh, that was sad. They should have taken much more notice of the people that were, who were working firsthand with these young men 
who a lot of them are just going trained to go out there and be killed. Yeah, uh, I've yeah. I've forgotten the statistics. Um, but I I think it was round about thirty odd percent. Yes, uh, yeah, right. of the fellows that trained uh, that didn't come home. Yep, yep, absolutely, yeah, uh, totally. Um, right. You're not old enough to remember the the casualty lists in the newspapers. They were dreadful things. I've certainly seen them when I've been researching back through the oh, newspapers. I've seen them. Then. Uh, yeah, uh, and they, 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 even now, it's really sad just going through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I think it was round about thirty odd percent of them that didn't come home. Yeah. Yep. And uh, um, now I got into a bit of strife with the authorities at um, at Ashburton. Okay. Uh, yes, I flew through some power wires, Ooh. and um, I was just not paying attention. I yep. wasn't closely uh, glued to what I should have been looking at, and I flew through the top of some willow trees. I didn't, actually. My pupil did. Right. Uh, but I took my attention away from what he was doing, so the buck stopped there, didn't it? Yeah. And yeah. Um, we went through some willow trees, and uh, no great hardship there. Uh, it was just the tops of them. But running through the tops of them, there was three power lines carrying 66,000 volts. Ooh. And... Um, the tiger moth hit those wires. Surprising how I can remember them stretching. It seemed to go on forever before they they finally broke. Right. The tiger moth slowing right up. These wires were... Uh, the prop had hit them and cut them. Yep. And there was a piece of, of copper-coated steel wire but copper coated wire yep. about six or eight inches along broken off right through the prop right I'm sorry I didn't get that piece of wire actually <laughs> and uh, it uh, all added to the uh, court of inquiry that went on uh, as a result of that particular praying right we didn't we didn't we weren't forced to land I flew home reported it to the boss and uh, gee it's just so long ago um, they, they give you an opportunity as an officer yeah my rank was flying officer at that time right and uh, they give you the opportunity to elect to be dealt with by courts martial or by um, Court of Inquiry. Right. I elected the Court of Inquiry, which is made up of your peers. A handful of the other instructors will sit in, in judgment on you. Okay, so you, um, 
the result of the court of inquiry is that when you ended up becoming a ground grounded instructor. Yes. Yes. Ah, right. I remember. They're all dead. These people now, so it doesn't matter. I remember being having to report to air headquarters, and uh, that was in Wellington. And they kindly booked me in in the Grand Hotel in Wellington. And uh, two things happened to me there. One was that I was feeling pretty bloody sorry for myself and uh, wondered where it was going to stop. And I was told that I'd be, that the, the boss man in charge of the Air Force where the hell yeah, he got in there with a name like Bannerman? I don't know. It was as German as they come. But uh, Bannerman was the boss man. And yep. he sent a message to tell me to wait outside his office. And he'd call me in when he was ready. And he kept me standing there for six hours. Wow. He did. He kept me standing there for six hours. And... Uh, he gave me a bit of a dressing down, and then he said, um, you'll be posted to training command. Report to Wing Commander Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N. Right. And uh, I thought, oh, a bit of sunshine at last. Martin had been my instructor on twin engine when I was learning to fly. Okay. Yes. Well, instead of getting a nice... Gee, you're a naughty boy, McKinley from Martin. He dressed me down too. Took the opportunity to wave his seniority, and that's about as much as I remember about that. Yep. Um, all these people have been well gone. Like everybody else, we felt we didn't join up or sit around, and there was a lot of waiting. And uh, first, the first aircraft we flew were P-40s. Right. The old Kitty Hawk. Yep. And later on, the War Hawk. Yep. Uh, the difference between those two was the engine. D did you like the Kitty Hawk? Oh, uh, yes and no. When, you, when you've flown something better, it's, uh, <laughs> its main fault was that it, it was no good at altitude. Right. Right. At about 20,000 feet, you could waggle a stick between your knees and the aileron control was such that the aeroplane would hardly waffle. It had ba bad aileron control. Right, right. Uh, for a machine that was intended to, um, to, to be a capable of better things. So the Corsair must have been quite a good step up for you then. Oh, the, the, the Corsair was a magnificent piece of engineering. That's the only way I can describe it. Yep. Um, everything was so smooth on it. You could touch the controls, the, the rudders. Yep. And you just touch them with your toe and the rudder would continue to slide away from you and the other one, the other rudder, come back towards you, of course. Yep. And it, it was just like an oiled machine. That's that's right. my memory of, of the Corsair. 
and um, the first takeoff in one, of course, was just holy hell. Where did 2,000 horsepower dragging you upwards? And, and it must have been pretty neat to get up with a, a whole formation oh, of these things. It was a special privilege. Flying was a special privilege. Um, you know, the, the poet, John McGee. Oh, yes, yeah. High flight. Yeah, yes, high sir. flight. Yeah. Um, he, summed, he summed it all up. Uh, somewhere in Auckland, you'd be able to buy a bronze plaque with McGee's poem on it. Oh, right. Which incidentally I can recite with, with eyes closed and with eyes open. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth, and sunward climbed with laughter silvered wings. I have swung and soared and done a thousand things you can't, you have not dreamed of. Up, up, up the long durious blue where neither lark nor eagle flew and put out my hand and touched the face of God. That's John McGee. He should have stayed being a poet. He flew into the side of another airplane and was killed. Being a poet, the man was a dreamer, and uh, you couldn't afford to dream up there. (laughs) And he did fly into the side of a, a bit of broken cloud over England. And um, just flew clear of this broken crowd and into the side of another airplane. Right, right. Tell me about getting posted onto the onto the first squadron. Was it number fifteen squadron you went on to with the Corsairs? My first squadron was number fifteen. Yes, and the squadron commander was John. 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 They got a big. They got a quarries and similar business interests even today in Auckland. Okay. Uh, oh, was it um, Winston's? Win- Win- Don Winston, Winston yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. And um, when I joined that squadron, um, because of my instructing background and ability to yakka, uh, Don Winston said, you're going to be a. Uh, we we want you appointed here as a super. What they call a supernumerary officer. Yep. Uh, so I had the joy of being in 15 squadron as a as a, a fellow who flew number two to the squadron leader whenever we were in the air. Right. Right. Which was good. I loved formation flying. Yep. It 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 demanded things of you that. Uh, that you to dredge up and find out whether you had them or not. Right. Yep. By the way, there was 27 members in a fighter squadron of those days. Oh, yes. Yep. And um, we, we, grew, we were, by the time we'd been together, we were, we were pretty close-knit. One of them was the, the sort of the clerk for the outfit. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he was affectionately known as the spy. <laughs> um, Frank Keefe, flight lieutenant, was a New Zealand champion harbour swimmer. 
and he was shot down and he landed in the harbour at, at Rabal. Smelly harbour, active volcano there, spewing out smoke all the time. Yep. And um, they patrolled over the type, top of Keefe all day till it got dark. And then John was swimming strongly when they last saw him towards the harbour mouth, horseshoe-shaped harbour. Yes. As yep. I said, with this smelly volcano at one end. And, uh, yes, he was almost at the harbour mouth and the tide changed and the tide started to roar back into the harbour again. And... Um, the Japs were just waiting on that. They, when darkness came, they just rode out with lights and found him. And that was Frank Keefe. And uh, we had these Corsairs flying backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, keeping the Japanese heads down. Yep. But, of course, it became dark. Right. And uh, that's pretty well the end of the story I I think oh no you, you'd be able to find this information quicker and better than me but uh, there was a large number of men um, we lost yes I think it was eight eight Corsairs were lost was it eight yeah 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 that's an indictment and what was wrong with them uh, Just completely lost in the lost uh, in the storm. You should still be able to ditch a Corsair and get out of it. That's my I think it, I think it was more the storm than anything. Personal opinion. It was a storm. They flew into a storm between between Rabaul and um, Green Island. Yeah. On the, on the way back, they flew into a storm. But and, those, storms, uh, those storms used to go through, and they'd go through in five or ten minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, they had a name for them, um, but they were black. They were as black as the inside of a cow, and uh, you just had to fly through them and yep. come out the other side. The big. We all had our different strategies, and mine always was. I was a flight commander, and I always had at least three other men with me. Just to get right down 50 feet off the water and um, where you could still see the, the, the white caps. Yes. Yep. And um, and just fly through that muck. Um, you could, they had radio fixes and you could, you knew you were in the crap, so you yep. called your base. Um, and all the bases had dogs' names. Dane base, Terrier base, Foxy base, and named after different breeds of dogs. Right. right. And all you had to do was press a button. Dane base, give me a steer. Brief and as quick as that. Yep. And they'd have two different reporting points, radio station there and one over there. They'd draw... The, the the line of the radio beam across yes. and where that radio beam, where those two beams crossed was where you were, right. really close. 
And within a minute, Dane Bass would come back with your position, with your position, and it was always just red leader, steer, 050 for base, or whatever the course was. And that was it. Press the button. He'd come yep. back and say, transmit for homing. You would press the button so that your transmitter hummed. They would get a fix on the direction of your radio beam and come back very quickly. Red leader. Steers 050 for base, or whatever the course was. Now, that's a, a very vivid memory that I do have and you could rely on it. That's a, what, can you tell me about your actual first uh, operation? When you first went into, um, on a combat operation, you know, what, was the, what was the feeling? Because you hadn't done it before. Were you, were you apprehensive or were you excited? Yeah, I'm trying to think back. Japanese never came close enough for combat with our squadrons when I was up there. Right. They'd sit, oh, I'll only guess, and say five miles away, way out to your starboard or way out to port, over water the whole time. Yep. And they'd do aerobatics. <laughs> and they'd mess around, but they would never come in and mix it. And we could not leave where we were because our job was protection of the Venturas and other aircraft that were going out on an operation of some sort. Right. Our job was to protect the New Zealand light bombers that were there, and right. that were mostly Venturas. And yes. we just weave backwards and forwards over the top of them, backwards and forwards, until the Americans used to sit away up on what they called high cover. Well, they flew mostly lightnings they would sit up at, at, at 20,000 feet oh, and right. and they would be keeping their eye open from away up there right <laughs> the, the common call the Americans couldn't keep quiet on the radio they didn't know the meaning of radio silence <laughs> and uh, they'd sit away up there at 20,000 feet and they'd holler They'd start chattering amongst themselves, but the main yep. cause, here the dirty little yellow bastards come. <laughs> and then you'd, you'd tighten your weave, we'd be weaving backwards and forwards into what they called a scissor. Yes. You heard of scissoring? I have, yep. yep. Well, scissoring, you pulled your corsair hard over. She, her wings were vertical. Okay. And you're heading towards another Corsair coming the other way. And that you'd pass that other Corsair 50, 100 feet away. And as soon as you passed him, you'd whack your Corsair right over into a full tight turn going back the other way. All well, right. The Corsairs would be doing 350 knots. Now, two aeroplanes. <laughs> Passing that speed's fairly fast. Yeah. <laughs> but you're scissoring over the top of your the, the, the airplanes you're protecting. And um, when the boss yelled scissor, you just pulled tight. And here's the Corsair rushing at you. You'd, you'd pass 50 or 60 feet apart, 
And as soon as you got past, you'd whip hard over, turn the other way, and go back and pass the same aeroplane again going in the operation. But underneath you were the the light bombers, the Venturas and the likes. And you just scissored tight over the top of them so that if the enemy wanted to come in and have a go, he was facing six machine guns from each and every one of those Corsairs that were weaving backwards and forwards. Right. Have I described that well enough? Absolutely, yeah, brilliantly. Um, yeah, that's that's very vivid, actually, yeah. very interesting. It's, what about the dive bombing? You must have done a bit of dive bombing as well. Corsair was a good aeroplane to dive bomb with. Um, oh, David, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, you could lower your undercarriage on a Corsair, and it had two great sheet metal covers. Yep. When your wheels were up, did you? first of all, I'll ask a question. Did you know why the Corsair had bent wings? Because of the um, size of the prop. Because uh, of the arc of the propeller. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the undercarriage was hinged at the lowest point of the bend in the wing. Right. And that that jacked the whole aeroplane up in the air for takeoff, for one thing. Because when you put your tail up, your nose comes nearer the ground. Um, And that big bit of sheet metal that went up and down with the wheels was there to... um, Act as a dive brake, and you could you could dive in a Corsair, but you'd quite often put your undercarriage down to avoid what we called compressibility. Again, the aeroplane talking to you, telling you, "Hey, that's enough." Right. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm not designed for that. I'm not designed for this. Uh, mostly by vibration. A lot right. of vibration used to keep in. The whole aeroplane would shake from stem to stern. That's when you had to cut your speed back because of what aeronautical engineers would call compressibility. Right. That was our job mainly, of course, was um, bombing. Yes. Yeah. You could carry, <laughs> I've forgotten that too, but you could carry, um, well, I've had 2,000-pound weight in bombs underneath a Corsair. Right, right. And um, you needed a a wee bit more runway to to just get your speed up and get off. Yep. Um, I remember one fellow who, uh, oh, we were asked to fly, this is an interesting point, we were asked to fly some Corsairs belonging to the Americans from, um, might need my logbook, um, it might have been Esperito Santo, but I'm not sure, I think it was further north than that, but from this island, and um, we were asked to buy fly American planes up to Manus, Oh, yes, yep. Uh, and um, because 
the, the Americans were busy with that famous, famous general of theirs. Rat MacArthur. MacArthur. And we were asked to fly Corsairs up to Manus Island. Not much of Manus Island, a very, very small bit of dirt in the middle of the Pacific. And, right. Um, one of our fellows got two-thirds down the runway and his engine stopped. Bang! Just like that. He got away with it. Uh, but they found X number of gallons of water in his fuel tank. Wow. Just lack of maintenance, lack of checking. The Kiwis had a good reputation for the maintenance, didn't they? Oh, yes. Um, we were probably a little sore as pilots because the Americans were moving further north. They were pressing, island hopping, one yep. to the other, and um, they wanted to take the New Zealand squadrons with them. Right. And uh, the New Zealand ground people said, hey, what about maintenance? You take our maintenance men too. And the American answer was, hey, we made these bloody aeroplanes. We know how to fix them. Yep. And uh, the New Zealanders wouldn't allow them. The New Zealand authorities would not allow the New Zealanders to go any further. Oh, okay. I think I... I I think I could stand proven on that. Yep. But I'm not, not completely sure, but I I do know that the um, the Americans were pretty sore and they, they virtually said, oh, well, you keep your squadrons down there. They can look after the wife and kids. Right. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, tell me something, Peter. Did your squadrons either... 15 or 26, did they have um, a nickname for the squadron? Um, for example, 22 Squadron was, I believe, called the Catapo Squadron, and 23 Squadron was the Ghost Squadron, and 24 Squadron was the uh, the um, Black Panther Squadron. Were, was there a nickname no, for 15? No, there wasn't. No. No, there wasn't. Uh, the Ghost Squadron was... Um, the, the uh, commanding officer was a man called Dewilimov. Oh, yes, yep. Uh, his nickname was the Mad Russian, or the name of the <laughs> yeah. What would you expect? Yeah. Um, was a fine squadron commander. He, inst right. he instilled a, a large amount of trust uh, within the chaps that he flew with. He, he survived the war, run a service station of up north somewhere, but died quite young. Right. Yeah, the Willowsmanoff squadron was the ghost squadron because yep. he had an awful lot of runts in his squadron, little guys like me. Yep. <laughs> and until they jacked their seat up, it looked as if the aeroplane was taxing out with nobody in it. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it got the nickname the ghost squadron. Right. <laughs> Airplanes that got round the, round the strips with nobody in them. <laughs> uh, he was a fine chap to Willemoff. Right, right. Had a lot of time for him. 
did your squadron, either 15 or, or 26, have any sort of um, emblem or, or mascot or anything like that? No, no, we did not. I, I can't understand oh, the uh, Auckland man, Winston. I can't, Don, can't understand Don not grabbing on something like that. Yeah. He was a fiercely loyal man. Um, I remember one occasion when... Um, the squadron was going out somewhere, and my engine wouldn't start. Right. Not uncommon. Maybe I flooded it a wee bit. I don't know. But there was a fellow rushed forward, a ground staff chap, and uh, I just remember he was angry, yelling at his ground crew, and the, the procedure then was to turn switches off, throttle wide. That's where the, that was yelled to the pilot. Yeah. He didn't have much to do. Switch switches off and open his throttle wide. And the ground crew would push the propeller backwards. Right. To yep. blow any surplus fuel out of the carburetor. And this man rushed forward, yelling at his ground crew, uh, probably feeling insulted that one of his aeroplanes wouldn't start. And he put his shoulder to the blade to push it backwards. Yep. I didn't have much to do. I just had to put my hand out and kick my switches off. And and throw the throttle wide open, and I'd done that. Yep. And I was halfway out of the aeroplane. There's plenty more sitting there. I could climb into the next door one. And um, this chap rushed forward and pushed on the blade. Well, it, it what a word they use. It hydrolicked. In other words, one of the cylinders came up against back pressure yep. from a cylinder that was full of fuel. And, uh, of course, it just got so far and it compressed that fuel in the cylinder and just stopped, take a bit to push, push past it. Yeah. And... Uh, I just recall that he, um, the, the, it, it struck the compression of all this fuel and it kicked backwards. And the propeller swung back probably half a turn. Yeah. There were three blades on them. And yes. One blade opened this chap's shoulder up, uh, him up from the arm, right down his arm to his elbow. And uh, he made a lot of noise, went to squadron commander and said, I want a charge laid, laid against that pilot. <laughs> and uh, Don Winston just wouldn't wear it and quietly comforted the man in some way or other. And I never yep. heard any more about it. But he, the man had an awful wound, I recall that. Yeah. I. They were a wonderful aeroplane. You know they were made by a tyre company? 
Yeah, Goodyear, wasn't it? B.F. Goodrich. And Goodrich tyres were well known. And yep. they said, we've got lots of facilities, we've got lots of staff to the American government. Shut us down as tyre makers and give us the equipment and we'll make aeroplanes. <laughs> and they did. Right. Hmm. So what what were you doing at the when the war ended? Were you still up in the islands when the war ended? Um, no. I had um, a shonky knee and I had gone down to Guadalcanal for medical survey and uh, they told me there, an orthopedic man called White, he told me, he said, uh, that knee will heal, but he said, uh, you'll pay for it in your old age. <laughs> prophetic. <laughs> very, very prophetic. Right. Um, my knee has, my, as I said, like so my hydraulics have backed up <laughs> in my old age uh, yep. with with shonky knees and um, uh, the shonky knee uh, I had treated in New Zealand I was sent back to New Zealand and treated here and um, right. uh, then I was passed fit for full full flying duties which cheered me no end and I went to the wing commander in charge of fighter operations, and I've forgotten his name. But we knew each other on first name terms back then. Yep. And he he said, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. He said, I knew what I, what I was going to do with you. You've heard the news this morning. I said, no, I haven't. He said... Well, the Japanese have surrendered. Oh. And uh, he said, you were, you were to go to, to Borneo, uh, <laughs> with a squadron to Borneo, in what position, I don't know. But I was sitting in his office when he told me that the war had ended. Right, okay. Yeah. So um, he said, I don't know where I'm going to find a job for you. I said, I do. He said, where? I said, back where I came from. And I just was out of the Air Force as quick as that. Wow, okay. Right. There seemed no purpose in staying there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you kept up the flying though, didn't you? Oh, oh yes. Um, I had this love of my life, this Bravo Sierra Papa. And um, <clears throat> I was an unwilling owner of... Uh, Bravo Sierra Papa. Um, a man came, I was running the Dunedin Hire Service. Yep. Which later changed to Hire Quip. Oh, yes. Yep. And um, a man came in and he said, um, I've got an excavator I want to sell. I said, I don't want an excavator. <laughs> and uh, conversation enough that he said it's a good excavator and he said I went to my bank manager and I said I want to buy um, I want to buy an excavator and he said uh, you can buy an excavator when you've sold that aeroplane you play around in 
So uh, the bank manager wouldn't give him any more credit because he reckoned he could sell the airplane and get the money. Right. So he came to me. He didn't know I had any background in airplanes at all. But we finally did a deal, and I ended up with a Cessna 180, and, and he ended up with a digger. I was driving, it was a Sunday morning, and I was driving into uh, the old Union Airways hangar at Tyree. Yep. Um, the Union Airways hangar was on the Silver Stream side, you know, the, the creek that the Silver yes, Stream yeah. is a, a creek that runs down one side of the Tyree airfield. Right, yep. And I'm driving down from the north end, and I see a Mustang taking off. And uh, he's two-thirds of the way down the, down the runway, and he shuts his power off. Oh. And I jammed on the brakes, and I'm thumping my steering wheel, and yelling at this guy, lift your undercarriage, lift your bloody undercarriage. And because uh, he could have lifted his undercarriage, skidded to a halt, done a min minimal amount of damage, yep. as minimal as you could get away with, but he didn't. He jammed on his brakes, and it was like on ice. He just oh, kept right. sledging, and it go roaring past the front of me, Ripped his wheels off on, on the greater ridge. The greater had cut a ridge along the edge of the road that I was on. Oh, yep, yep. Went across in front of me, 30 feet away. Ooh. Up the railway embankment and on top of the... Set the damn thing on top of the railway bank, facing back towards Dunedin. Oh, and... Uh, I out of my car and up through the broom and gorse. It was all wet to uh, to get him out, yelling, get out of that bloody thing. You just never know when they're going to, you know, a spark. Yep. But it didn't. And uh, he got out. And uh, he is probably retired now, but he ended up running a dive, an aerial dive school. Okay. Taking people up in a in a um, top dresser to about ten thousand feet and tossing them out with a with right. a, with a jump instructor. Yep. Yep. So how did you get into the territorials? When when did you get into the territorials as well? Do you remember a band called Jack Day? No. Jack and I'd known each other during the war, and um, Jack Day came to me one day and he said. Um, Territorials was it was formed and they were looking for members, right? And uh, I joined the territorials with his uh, encouragement, but I didn't need much encouragement because there was a nice shiny row of of P fifty one sitting there, right? Right, and uh, they had an adjutant. And uh, he and I sold newspapers together as kids. Okay. And um, he was permanent staff Air Force. And uh, the only paid member, well, we got paid too, actually. The only full-time 
member of the territorial squadron. And right. um, I remember him sending me loose in a Mustang. And he said, uh, stood on the, the, the wing, I'm inside, all strapped in. He pointed a few things out. He said, I've nothing else to tell you. He said, take her up to 10,000 feet and take her up to 10 and throw her around. <laughs> so I did that. And uh, at 10,000 feet, I threw this aeroplane around the sky a bit. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't loop it. Every time I tried to loop the damn thing, I fell out of it into a, into a spin. Yep. Recovered, climbed back up again, and uh, same process, again and again. When I got on his head, you get on. And I said, I haven't spun the thing yet. Uh, at least I said, I've, I, I've never looped the thing yet. I tried to do a very ordinary loop at 10,000 feet. And it spun on me every time. I should have forgot to tell you that. That's one of their characteristics. Oh. So the P-51, um, when you loop it, <clears throat> you've got to fly it all the way around. Oh, okay. You, 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 you can't pull it round. You know, you yep. nose down, nose up. You're easing the stick back and it's a wee bit of G-force on your eyes and you know, your head's kicked away back looking for the horizon, and uh, she just suddenly flickered into a spin. He said, "Oh, I forgot to tell you that. Okay, you can't, you can't uh, fly them round in a loop." He said, you, "Beg your pardon. You can't pull them round in a loop. They will not. The G-force uh, is such that they, they just flick and spin every time. And that's one characteristic, characteristic I remember about the." Mustang, the P-51. How did it compare after the Corsair? Did you prefer the Mustang or the Corsair? Uh, I think it was Lord Cobham that said comparisons are odious. <laughs> does, that, does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah. you, you, there were two, so were, two entirely different aeroplanes. Yep. And you treated them accordingly. Yep. The Corsair, its rate of climb got me 4,000 feet a minute. Wow. That's, 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 that's leaving the ground fairly quickly. <laughs> and um, I just remember saying, holy hell, when yeah. I pulled the nose up and I kept going up. So what were yep. the good bits of the Mustang? It was pretty powerful, quick too, wasn't it? It's history for a start, and I like this bit. They had trouble with it at altitude, and the Americans just relegated to it to a low-level uh, ground attack fighter. They gave it to Farnham. Do you know Farnham? Yes, yep, yep. They gave it to Farnham the uh, Royal Naval Aviation College. Dorian and I visited it, but I've forgotten a lot. And they put it back on the drawing board, made some alterations and said, there, fly it now. And we've got the Mustang. Right. Um, 
So it was pretty quick, wasn't it? You, I've heard you've told me that. Oh yeah, they were quick. Um, got a nice book at the moment. We'll give you all the statistics. Uh, about three hundred and they could do four hundred yep. under certain circumstances, but altitude altitude robs you of speed. You've got reduced atmosphere. You've got they're turbocharged, of course. Yep. And yep. Uh, you're climbing up, climbing up, climbing up. And at 10,000 feet, all of a sudden the engine will shut down on you. Whoa. And the nose will drop. And uh, only for a second or two. Yep. She was changing over on her superchargers. Right. And uh, at 10,000 feet, you got the supercharger cut first level of the supercharger cut in and you got ground level power again at 10,000 feet okay uh, then it would do the same again at 20,000 feet and then it said you're on your own <laughs> <laughs> um, what sort of flying did you do in the Mustangs in New Zealand what, what, was what, there a, what sort of flying, flying what, what sort of um, training and flying and you know, were you doing a lot of low-level stuff? Were you doing any... Um... Uh, a fellow, a Czech pilot, just stands on the wing outside you, asks you a few questions about the the layout of the yep. instrument panel, uh, then says, right, she's all yours. Yeah, but, but what sort of flying did you do? What were your duties? What were your instructions in the territorials? What's, what sort of work did you do? Did you, yeah, that sort of thing. I think we just played around like a lot of kids with a new toy. Um, we didn't have any particular duties. We were there as a defence squadron uh, if it was needed. What for? I don't know. New Zealand's got a lot of coastline, and the Japanese were the fear, and. Uh, they could have landed anywhere, I suppose. Yeah. Then, then we'd have had duties, wouldn't we? No, but this is after the war, so there was still fear of communism generally, wasn't there? So they'd fear that that, that there could be more war in the ten years after the war. Is that right? Is that why it was there? Oh, I don't think it was as long as that. But um, the Japanese were a perceived threat. That's the way I would. Yeah, but by by the time the territorials were formed, you'd won the war against the Japanese. Oh yes, they'd surrendered. Yeah. So were you doing um, uh, camps with the other squadrons? Did, didn't you get together once a year with the other squadrons from Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch and have a big sort of we had, exercise? We had an annual camp at Ohakia every year. What was that like? Um, <laughs> was it? Tell the truth to Dave. Yeah, yeah. Did you do anything the, useful, or was it an excuse yeah, for a good party? Drank a lot of beer. Though <laughs> <laughs> um, your membership gave you free entry to any air force organisation in the country. Right. And I could walk into any Air Force officer's mess. 
introduce myself to the mess president and he'd say have a beer or something like that i don't know right but you had free entry to any air force institution in the country um dave i've just thought of something late in dad's time in the territorials he had his one and only opportunity to fly a jet ah right vampires right what well a, tell me about that yeah it was a hacky, wasn't it? Tom Raybone. Does it ring a bell? It does. It does. Yep. Yep. He, he'd been a fighter pilot during the war, hadn't and, he? And, and Jeff, yeah, he's a pupil of mine. Ah. Tom Raybone. Ah, okay. A, and Jeff Raybone, his brother, was an opening bat for New Zealand. The New Zealand captain about that time. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and uh, Tom Raybone. So did he take you up in one of the two-seater vampires? He took me up in a in a vampire. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, what do I recall? Um, Peter, when you light this thing up, get moving. Um, he told me the alarming, around, alarming rate they consumed kerosene at ground <laughs> level. Right. And uh, he said, you just crank her up. And he said, don't worry about the flames and the stuff out the back. The blokes with fire extinguishers standing there. So you crank her up and there's a lot of smoke and, and uh, uh, a bit of flame between the twin booms on the vampire. Yep. And you just taxi away out of that down to the end of the strip. Fast taxi as fast as you like. Fast taxiing was was a no-no, wasn't it, for an ordinary aeroplanes? Right. And um, But you taxi as fast as you can, open the throttle, and get away up out of it. We got to a 1,000 feet, and I think it was Tom Rayburn, and he said, do you know how much fuel you've consumed? He said, just over a 1,000 gallons. <laughs> yeah, That's, wow. That doesn't sound possible. That's huge. That's huge. Corsair. A lot, anyway. How much would a Corsair use? Um, a fifth of that or something like that, probably. Oh, Not even that. Not even that. Its main fuel line was as thick as the top part of your arm. Wow. Corsair. Corsair had two rows of nine cylinders. Yep. Front row and a back row, of course. And um, I was flying... Line astern one day. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to recollect the occasion. Yep. Don Winston had said, right, we'll do some line astern. We'll show these buggers how to fly formation. <laughs> and I think we were up about two or 3,000 feet and climbing. Yep. And in line astern, you're directly behind the fellow in front of you, but 50 feet below him. Yep, yep. So that you so step down in order to avoid his slipstream. Right, yes. And um, we're climbing up, and I saw something tumbling over, like a 3D film. Yep. It would be all over in... 
three or four or five seconds. But I just saw something tumbling over and over and over and rushing at me. Yep. Like, a, as I say, like a locomotive in a 3D film. Right. And uh, I, I, I was, something came through my canopy, hit me on the head, knocked me out. And when I came to, the recovery from unconsciousness like that is darkness. Then the darkness is filled with little gray spots. Yep. And then the little gray spots become lighter and lighter and lighter till they represent daylight. Right, yep. And uh, I came to with green grass rushing up, and I'm in a, a, a diving turn. Oh, blimey. And I recovered from the diving turn at 400 feet and climbed up. Got back on the ground again, parked my airplane alongside all the others. Ground staff guys were diving everywhere to get bits of the perspex that was broken in the canopy. Oh, yep, yep. They they used to carve things for their girlfriends. Yes, usually, yeah, I've seen that. Usually a set of wings. Yep. <coughs> so so what had hit I, you? I, I'm just trying to recollect Anson. I had pulled my airplane into line, wingtip to wingtip, with the other airplanes that were on the ground, as yep. was required of me. And uh, <clears throat> I get out of the airplane and walk towards the crew room. And Don Winston comes rushing over and he says, there's four aeroplanes sitting there doing nothing and they were scheduled to be in the air so many minutes ago. Where the hell are you? Who's supposed to be up? Those four four pilots rushed out and climbed into aeroplanes, including the one I, the one that was the aeroplane that had been flying in front of me. He'd been flying in front of me. And I was directly underneath him, 20 or 30 feet behind, and... 20 or 30 feet below. And uh, this smart sergeant, they were, those grand staff boys were good. Stop that aeroplane, he said, stop that aeroplane. And his sharp ear had picked up a different noise coming from the aeroplane that had been flying in front of me. Yep. He picked up that different noise. There's something wrong with that aeroplane. Shut it down. And when they shut it down, they found that a big lump of the exhaust pipe, so I think I said about as thick as the top part of your arm, yep. had been uh, broken loose and fallen from the aeroplane in front through my canopy, hits me on the bean, and uh, I was fortunate in that... You woke up quickly. My maker was looking after me, and I re recovered at 400 feet. Wow, amazing. Where did that happen at? Was that at Ardmore? That was at... Uh, that was at Ohakia. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, amazing. at Ohakia. 
tell you another little story that might be of interest to you. Yep. Years later, I bought a piece of land in central Otago, and it grew apples. Right. And I inherited um, a lot of orders for boxes of cases of apples. Yes. Well, I didn't think that I wanted to be a, a salesman of apples, but I had to fill these orders. And I'm going to Dunedin one day. I put three or four boxes of apples that I delivered, and I finally took them into a, an old man out Brighton Way at Dunedin. Yep. And his place was untidy. Oh, it was a shambles. And he had a constant drip at the end of his nose. Yep. And he's shuffling around. And I said, don't leave me standing here with this case of apples. Where do you want it? Opened the door of his cottage and it was a shambles too. And he cleared a wee area so I could put the case of the apples down. I put the case of the apples down. He turned and looked at me and said, I know you. I said, do you? He said, yep, you were in the Air Force. I said, that's right. He shuffled around and he dug out a photograph of, of um, a squadron I was with. Right. There you are. I said, you remember that? You remember me? And uh, he said, I remember all you fellows. I remember all you fellows. I said, what the hell did you do that you remembered all of us? He said, I was the winch man in the back of a, a wildebeest oh. towing a drogue for you fellows to fire at. <laughs> now, how was that for a bit of memory? That's pretty good. And he produced this photograph of, of my course at Oharkia. Right. And, and we were doing air-to-air -air firing on a drogue that he was the winchman and the old wildebeest. Right. That's one <laughs> for the books, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Did you have any other sort of scary incidents in the air? like, uh, Or did you ever get hit by flak or anything like that? Dave, back in my high school days I'm a member of a, a Baptist church in Dunedin yep and uh, there was a a very dominant member not dominant because he was a meek and mild man really but he was a great big broad shoulder fella a joiner by profession and builder and uh, the odd occasion that I went home on leave I'd go to church and uh, he always used to put his arm around my shoulder and say, Peter, there's never a night that I didn't remember you at the throne of grace. He was a Scotsman. <laughs> right. Well, so was I, of course. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I was a long, long way away from there. And John was a long, long way from my mind. Yep. And I was on a uh, a mission 
where we were attacking a large cultivated area that the Japanese were feeding off because the Japanese government didn't agree with feeding their men. Right. They had to live off the land. And this was just a large cultivated paddock. All trees at one end. We used to fry in pears, one at 3,000 feet and the other one down near the ground. I was the one down near the ground. My number two was sitting at 3,000 feet. And if I called him in, he had to come in, skinning his eyes for what I'm telling him he's to look for on the way down. Yep. We're doing just that one day. Dave, it was, it was almost routine in our, our daily work in those days. Right. And I turned in and down on this ploughed paddock and uh, couldn't see a thing. They're all lying doggo in the furrows, trying to look like a turnip, I suppose. But they, <laughs> they, they were doggo in the furrows. And I'm down at the stage where the aeroplane's telling me to pull out. They, they, they talk to your aeroplanes. Yep. And the, the, the little vibrations are telling me that's tight enough. Don't yep. pull her any tighter. And uh, somebody moved in the furrows. So I take the time to press the button and kick the rudders a wee bit either way to spray it around. Yep. And then to pull out well you know you know about centrifugal force and things like that and I'm pulling out and the airplane is sinking because of the angle I'd been diving at yep and it arrived at the bottom of its sink and the nose started to lift and pull away again and all I could see was these bloody great trees in front of me <laughs> And I could not do anything about it. The aeroplane's telling me, no more, no more, don't pull me, don't pull back on that stick anymore. Yeah. And so I've got it at his limit. I've got her at his limit. Yes. And I think I was a good pilot. Uh, uh, and I knew when it was telling me something. So I just kept at the staggering stage, uh, full throttle on by this time, and she's yep. slowly climbing away. And uh, I went through the top of some trees. Right. Uh, branches, leaves, everything, all on my starboard side, past my ears, and the aeroplane sort of shuddered seemed to stop for me but but it 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 the the full throttle caught on and she picked up and she roared away but i had to go through the top of these bloody trees yep and uh so i went through the top of them and uh i i was i wasn't frightened i got a fright right 
There's a difference. Yep. And I got a fright, a terrible fright. And you sat with your feet on two long aluminium trays. Yep. And then a big empty belly underneath you that's got cables and hydraulic lines and things. Yes. And yep. I had to put my hand on my left hand knee and press hard on it because the knee, the knee was clattering, shaking up and down. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, the fright just uh, pushing hard on my knee to stop it shaking like this. Yep. And uh, that's when I went through the top of the trees. Wow. And uh, I got through the top. There's water on the other side. I headed for the water, about 50 feet off the water, and then uh, leveled out and flew. The water was always a safety place for us. Yes. You didn't want to be on the ground with those other fellows down there. And uh, that's, that's just where I ended up, flying about 50 feet off of the water and getting the hell out of it and saying to myself, John, John, you were praying for me that time. <laughs> <laughs> now, my dad told me I was vaccinated with a gramophone needle. I've already told you that. Hey, Dave, good stuff. You know, the only only bits that he hasn't referred, the only thing I can think of, and I, I want to say this on his behalf, yep. um, is that unlike me, my father is a very uh, practical, capable man with machines. And uh, once buying the bits of a bulldozer at an auction, leaving them sitting in long grass for years and then finally deciding it was time he put it together, and he did. Yeah. And he also built um, um, his own avid flyer at that time I told you about when right. he, he and the other bloke were running the, uh, running the uh, agency, I suppose you'd call yeah. it, for those in New Zealand. Yes, the, right. the, those aeroplanes that he sold are still... Um, I know of one. Or two, I know of one or two of them that are flying around this district, and I think one went as far north as North Auckland, didn't it, Dan? One flew flown right round round New Zealand. Yeah, right. So they, right. you know, they're they're more than just um, home built in the, uh, you know, what do you call those things? Uh, microlite. Microlite. They're more yep. than microlite. They're substantial. They've got a full cabin, even though they're only two seated. There's no back seat. Well, one is very very intimate. Yeah. You know, yeah. your shoulders are you're, you're squeezed in to get into it. Yes. yes. Uh, that, that, that was an interesting, I guess you'd say, twilight part of Dad's flying, I thought. Right. Just right. on a beach over on the west coast. And there were, there was a fellow there, I can't remember what he was in. It was either an Oster or a Cessna. Yeah. And he wanted to go home. He was a Catholic priest. You'll find it in the in the records of a little booklet called Missing. Oh, right. Uh, it's on the library shelves around New Zealand somewhere. And I, yep. I said to him, don't go. I said, leave the bloody airplane on the ground. That's a lot of big mountains between here and where you're going. Crosby was his name, Father Crosby. And I okay. said... 
leave it on the ground. Stay and stay with us. And don't go over those mountains in this weather. He took off. I don't think they've found him yet. Right. And uh, see, I don't know what it is. It's a bit of rat cunning, I suppose. You just learn that. that days to fly and days not to fly. That, yeah. 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 That's it. There are good days and bad days. Hey, Dave, thanks so much for your interest in Dad's we're flying. Being, we're being cut off, Dave. Yeah, well, thank you very much for, for this interview. It's been really interesting. Okay. Okay, thanks then. Well, thank again. you very much. Thanks Cheers. very, very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.